Inescapably. Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. This is the podcast for nomads, expats, third culture kids, immigrants, or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Today I'm here with Dr. Michael Bren, aka the travel psychologist. So Michael is also an author, lecturer, travel storyteller, adventurer, and publisher of travel books and guides. Oh, and remember, um, if you are new to the show, you can always access the transcript at www.withoutborders.fyi. Well, let's get into it. Michael, how are you doing today? All right, great. Thanks for having me as a guest. I'm excited to have you as a guest. I've been uh, doing a lot of research the past few days about you and your work. Um, so, Michael, where, where are you right now? I'm on Bainbridge Island. <laughs> Uh, off of Seattle, off across the Sound, when you look at a map, you'll see there's a division of Washington State, and I'm on the same area where the Olympic Peninsula is, where the National Park, Olympic National Park is. Yes, I'm familiar. Beautiful area, because I, I grew up in British Columbia, so I, I also lived in Vancouver for a long time, um, so both West Coasters, I guess. Uh, where did you grow up, Michael? Did you grow up in Seattle, or...? No, no, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and uh, part of my uh, history is I eventually moved to Hawaii to do my doctorate. I thought, if I'm going to do a PhD uh, and I'm bitten by the travel bug, I couldn't find a better place at the time to dedicate five years to working on a PhD than the beaches and beach parks of Honolulu. Yeah, I'm. I have some questions about that as well because I'm also curious about the paper you wrote. Now I know it was a long time ago, so we don't have to get into all the details. But I am curious about the the paper, intercultural communication, and the adjustment of a sojour sojourner. How? What's the word? Uh, sojourner. Sojourner or traveler, right? <laughs> um, but Michael, but before we get into that. You're the man that coined the the phrase travel psychology, and that was in 1965. And now if someone Googles travel psychologist, they'll see some other people pop up as well. And it seems to be a growing field, especially in the, um, in the social sciences. Um, now me, I'm more familiar with the term cultural psychology, right? Which started in the 1920s with the, the Soviet Russians, uh, Lev, Vygotsky and Alexander Luria. Um, so I'm curious, how do you distinguish between cultural psychology and travel psychology? Well, I don't. That's okay. That's it. I mean, simply stated, uh, I just plunged ahead with uh, thinking of all things travel psychology, um, which is not so much dealing with specific cultures. Uh, as that study may be, but basically trying to ferret out and understand better what is it about our psychological makeup that comes into play with travel and how uh, does this affect the way we interact with people. Today, international behavior is so important. Being able to get along with people all over the globe is, is critical. And I think uh, at the time I started it, people were aware of intercultural 
relationships, <clears throat> and uh, it surprised me, it really surprised me that no one else really before me focused on the whole concept of what is traveling all about and, and how is it so important in our lives. I just couldn't believe at the time that nobody else was really studying this. They were studying aspects of it. So, for example, uh, I worked for the University of Hawaii Peace Corps program where American Peace Corps volunteers would go around the world and help uh, with uh, other cultures uh, supporting them. These were generally, at the time, younger people full of uh, enthusiasm and spirit and wanting to go help peoples of other countries. And the University of Hawaii had a Peace Corps training program. So I thought, wow, I should get involved with that. And I did, and uh, I wrote some papers about my experiences with that. That began my learning of what it's about to study the psychology of people traveling, how travel affects us and how we affect others. Yeah. Um, and and when you were doing with the, the Peace Corps, uh, when you were a Peace Corps volunteer, that also led you to study Chinese, Japanese, Indonesian, and even Tongan, correct? Yes. I, I wish I had actually become a Peace Corps volunteer and got, gotten sent overseas, but I was part of the psychology staff at the University of Hawaii. But nonetheless, I sat in with the trainees and studied Tongan because foreign languages was a passion for me. And so I loved doing it. And the funny thing was, I was the best, <laughs> I was the best speaker <laughs> among all the volunteers. I mean, it was just nice. And I palled with the um, uh, instructors. I became sort of like a teacher's pet, so to speak. So sometimes they came over to Honolulu because the training sites took place on the island of Molokai, which is a neighbor island. And so they'd meet with me, we'd go have a beer together and talk a little Tongan and a little English, a little bit of both. It was fun. Very cool. Now, are there any words or expressions that you remember that you find difficult to translate into English? Because it's something I like talking about with the guests on the show who are multilingual. Um, like for me, I speak Spanish and Flemish, and there just are some words that you can't directly translate. You have to provide a bunch of context for people to kind of get what it is. So I was wondering, are there any inter interesting Tongan expressions or words or... Well, yeah, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm a bit rusty. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. I realize this a yeah, long time ago. But, <laughs> you know, things like, uh, you know, you've done things, said things so often. So, uh, it's just an expression that'll pop up into my mind. And Tongan was fairly similar to Samoan. And uh, I could have chosen a Samoan program to work with, but uh, for some reason I had chosen the Tongan. Uh, but like you, you were talking about my history a little bit, I studied uh, a few other languages. For example, when the University of Psychology Department uh, gave me a, a leftover fellowship that somebody had to quit and they said, would you like this fellowship? I said, sure, I'll take it. And that included the ability to study Chinese, uh, a whole summer language course of two 
the equivalent of two years of Chinese. And I loved that. And, and I feel it did pretty well. And a funny anecdote, I was only auditing the course. So the instructor called me up and said, Michael, Michael, you did so well in the spoken part of Chinese, but you didn't take the final exam in yeah. written Chinese. <laughs> and I'll tell you, that was some, the written Chinese was just too hard to stuff into a whole summer with what with learning to speak. I wanted to learn to speak more than I was concerned with reading it. And I said to the professor, thank you so much for calling me and warning me that you'd have to fail me in the course because I didn't take the written exam on written language of Chinese. And I said, I'm only auditing the courses. I'm not taking them for credit. And he went, he was so relieved. It was so nice of the quality. But, uh, and I took uh, Indonesian. I got a little grant to study the equivalent of two years of, of Indonesian. But if you don't use them, you lose them. So I got a little rusty. And every once in a while, I'll speak a little German, a little Spanish, a little French, uh, some Russian. I had three years of college Russian. But I don't often get to use them all the time. And this is what's so wonderful about being a Peace Corps volunteer is the language training they give you. You get to go to the country. If you're lucky, you don't have a bad case of culture shock. That is when just at the point where you need the understanding of the nonverbal aspects and the interpersonal aspects of interacting with people, you're still not good enough in the language, and you're not getting it in your interactions, you get depressed. That's called culture shock. And when you finally overcome that and turn it all around, you become more fluid in the language. You're getting along with the people much better. You're understanding them, and you're adjusting better, and you're happier. All of us that go overseas, excuse me, get a little touch of it, and uh, you just have to bear with it and overcome it, and then you do just fine. That's just a little aspect of travel psychology. Yeah. So now that I, um, in travel psychology or in cultural psychology as well, they do talk about culture shock and um, the adjustment period and how it can vary from person to person. Now, what what are some tricks you would give people to um, shorten this culture shock period or to adjust in ways that might make it a little bit easier? Uh, fortunately, uh, time and motivation and excitement are on your side because when you're traveling, uh, you just open yourself up more. If you are eager to delve into and immerse yourself into a culture, uh, it's lucky that the travel experience just suddenly cracks open the universe. Suddenly you realize it's the most exciting and quickest way to learn. When you're an excited traveler, you have all this new stimuli coming in from every direction and deeply ingrained in your personal being, in your mind is today is the first day of the rest of my travel life. And here's what I think helps us all. And that is the notion that when you're eager and you're excited and you have all these new exciting experiences and you're open to it, uh, there's no better, quicker way to learn because you're constantly getting reinforced by making good decisions. Uh, so in other words, 
you make an effort to speak to somebody. You don't fully understand and appreciate the, the menus and the foods, but if you just explore, which is why you're there to explore, you are there when you're traveling to be all that you can be, to personally grow, to personally have these new experiences and the excitement of the successes and the effect the successes have on you far exceeds the little failures that we all have little failures. We overcome them. Fortunately, when we're traveling, they're not too, too serious. It's just more serious when you're spending a longer time. Now, I don't know your personal experience. So I'd like to ask you, but how long have you been in Spain? Um, I've been here two years. Um, well, there was a year where I was going back and forth between Belgium and Spain, uh, but I've been here for two years now. Did you experience some of these periods of time when you felt, oh my gosh, I'm just not getting it. I'm not understanding everything. And no, he <laughs> didn't. Uh, but that's because I'm a little bit of a, an anomaly. I was pretty much born on a plane. <laughs> I was born in uh, um, Chile, South America, in Santiago. Yeah. Then a year later, I was in Antwerp, Belgium. And then a year after that, I was in Canada. And my parents took me to a different country every year. So, um, and look yeah, at this, you look at the life you're leading. Uh, I I imagine there's nothing more exciting uh, than the life that you're experiencing and you're living all these things that a lot of us need to deal with more if we're not lucky enough to have been born in another culture where the language is coming fast and furious and you're learning it as a kid. There's nothing like that. But we do the best we can. And yeah, well, I, I didn't speak Spanish beforehand because I was only in Chile as a baby. And then with my parents, I spoke Flemish. Um, yes, Flemish. And then I grew up speaking English. So I did have to learn Spanish here in Spain. And I'm still learning. Um, yeah, uh, I'm enjoying it. I love language as well. But it's definitely more of a struggle than I thought. Um, but yeah, I... I'm definitely an advocate for people getting out there and experiencing new cultures. And I'm, I'm proud and I feel fortunate for the fact that I was able to live in so many different countries at an early age. But there are definitely psychological phenomenon and problems as well with being a third, third culture kid. I've definitely had identity issues, um, sometimes still do, right? Like constantly struggling to find out where my where I might be rooted. And at this point, I don't feel really rooted anywhere. Um, but that also makes me feel like a world citizen, which has to my boss as well. That, that, uh, that's great. And that's what I love about travel is I'm on my way to developing myself somewhat as more of a world citizen. We need more people who have this world citizenship experience and notion about themselves than if many of us were more like this, I think we would have uh, more peace in the world. But, you know, that's just a little bit of philosophizing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mentioned this on a, another show, and even though I do think there's a role for patriotism, uh, especially in sports, like I think sports would be boring as hell if it wasn't for patriotism, uh, but that's not to be confused with nationalism, right? I think that's something that people have to avoid and I think travel is one of the things that can can um, dismantle nationalism uh, what what do you think oh I totally agree with you uh, that's 
where my learning and traveling is, has brought me uh, that exact uh, conclusion. Absolutely. Um, now, here, just to start from the beginning, because I, I do want to get into your new books, but um, I'm, I was curious about the paper your, the, that was published in the prestigious uh, Psychological Bulletin, right? So Intercultural Communication and the Adjustment of a Sojourner. Um, so I know you write about the social patterns of behavior and personality traits you noticed when studying expats, immigrants, and um, so I'm just I'm curious to know a little bit more about these social patterns and personality traits that you noticed with people who are are keen to kind of live a nomadic lifestyle. There's nothing like being shocked in a pleasant way when you're traveling. I just re recall one time when I was crossing a street in Morocco and here crossing opposite me coming into the direction uh, where I was, was a woman uh, whose whole face and body was covered except for her eyes. You know, it's sort of like fast forward. It's a, it, an analogous way uh, how many of us, whether we were aware of it or not, were facing other people during the COVID epidemic. We might as well have just been looking at someone who just showed a pair of eyes to us and nothing else. And all of a sudden, when she and I passed one another, she winked at me. And it threw me into a, a, a pleasant fit, like, oh my God, what's with this other person? I, had no other way to read our interaction and in our interpersonal behavior other than she winked at me. And I thought, hmm, I think that this was a very modern-day woman in Morocco just covered up as it was around that period of time in Morocco. It's less so today. And I started imagining, I mean, I never had any interaction with her beyond that, but I started to think, my gosh, you know, that's tabula rasa, blank tablet, when you're uh, faced with another person and you do not have all the different ways or cues of understanding or even beginning to interact with one another. I'm sure I smiled in my flabbergasted way, and I'm sure she was left with an opinion, probably laughed, and probably thought, oh, the poor poor guy he just had he didn't have a clue really how to react to me and uh, so our worlds then separated and that was a, a stunning moment in my life that got me to thinking how much we take for granted in our interactions with people and how few how little how few people really appreciated the fact that most of their interactions with people, let's say, in their own cultures, were so automatic, so pre-programmed, so regulated, so predictable. Mm -hmm. And then that had me starting to think more, well, isn't that a little bit more of what it's like when you find yourself totally into a new country, a new culture, where you haven't interacted that much with the people? How much do we take for granted from what comes from living in the, like America or Chile or Germany, um, where suddenly we realize, well, there's much more 
to what's going on between people. And there's nothing like COVID to let you see suddenly to realize, oh my goodness, I'm taking so much for granted. You know, and you're smiling under your mask and you realize suddenly, oh, oh, they don't see me smiling, but they may see my eyes doing something a little bit. So I began to focus on my uh, doctoral dissertation for a second on the uh, human use of space uh, and the specific little study that I did, because you can only do a teeny tiny fraction of anything when you're doing a, a thesis for your master's or your PhD. And I decided, would it be possible to measure human attitudes with a ruler? I, you know, I should have played that up more uh, when I was writing my dissertation, but I would have been jumped on, jumped upon uh, the faculty who were gonna uh, challenge me with good, interesting questions to defend, so-called defend my dissertation. Uh, but that was fun for me. I really got into it. I so did you accomplish it? How how can you? Yeah. Oh, I did. Sure. I did it. I it didn't take me that long. Uh, I knew early on that the best way to do a doctoral thesis was to collect your data in the quickest amount of time that you could. So I had use of one section of a cafeteria at the University of Hawaii for inviting my subject, my guest. Uh, the participants who volunteered, probably for course credit as well, to be my subjects. So I had 78 people arranging a little collection of <clears throat> symbols, maybe political figures, uh, uh, friend, acquaintance, stranger, as a checkpoint, because I predicted that friends, if I asked you to place myself on a little sticker on a field, that I was going to ask you questions to make up a story about the characters, and then I asked you, uh, okay, now place an acquaintance, now place a stranger. And I measured the distance between their placement of these stickers and the concept of myself. Mm -hmm. And I predicted, for example, that friends would be placed closer to the concept of me, myself, and I than a stranger would. And that was a little check and balance. So yes, and I did little sets of different concepts. And did you notice any differences between people who were from uh, a collectivistic background versus an individualistic background? Because, of course, there are uh, differences with how easy it is to penetrate an, in, uh, an inner circle, right? In individualistic cultures, it's quite easy to That's penetrate. That's a very good question. Very good question. And fortunately, living in Hawaii where you had different people of different cultural backgrounds, you might get some of these differences. So I had Japanese Americans, Japanese Hawaiian Americans, uh, people from uh, Japanese American backgrounds in Hawaii, as you would have Chinese, Korean, Samoan. Uh, but I I showed that uh, the differences between peoples was fairly consistent in that uh, the concepts that you liked or that you disliked uh, were all always placed closer to you, uh, okay. no matter what cultures you were from. So that was like a law of the universe, that uh, those that you have more positive regard and affect towards are going to be closer to you. So when I did that paper, getting back to that paper, Intercultural Communication and uh, the Adjustment of the Sojourner, 
that was really what were some of the factors that influenced uh, your uh, interactions with people of different cultures. One aspect of that was the whole concept of psychological distance, physical distance, conversation distance, the amount of touching and physical bodily interactions that we had, how far apart we stand. And there I saw differences. For example, I found that people of South American origins generally had closer interacting distances uh, between themselves and others. And we interpret that differently. And in this study of collecting different studies together, I found, for example, in my own life experience, I went to Mexico as a high school student. Uh, we had a trip to Mexico. And, uh, you know, friends take uh, video and films and movies of one another in the culture. And I never, I'll never forget, I was standing on the steps of the, the big cathedral in Mexico City, and the vendors uh, that sell you items that travelers like to get, you know, uh, I, I kept noticing he was moving into my space and I was always moving backwards and that the film showed me moving away, moving in, moving away. And whether I was conscious of it at the time, I didn't really know the social science behind it, but I realized that Mexican people tended to talk a little bit closer to one another uh, than uh, non-Hispanic. And, and there are different kinds of predictions. I saw the same sort of thing operating a little bit with Scandinavians having further uh, conversational distances. Uh, English people, the same thing. And I didn't really know it until I started learning all this research that they constantly are adjusting their spatial interactions as a cultural thing because they need to be closer. That's how they were raised, born and raised. And sometimes it can be misinterpreted as cult, uh, colder, less uh, personal. Uh, and these are subtle interactions that color our interactions. So the intercultural communication, the adjustment of sojourner included not only distance uh, interactions, but uh, social psychological uh, interaction too. So it covers a lot of things. And by the way, anyone who wants to read this paper absolutely for free, no charge, just go to my website and look up intercultural communication and you should find it. I have a little play on words, I call it Travel Psychology University. It's just, I have a few things that are more academic uh, but feel free to go there and take a peek. At, and uh, I think the uh, paper uh, is 106 on your website, right? Because I think you have, you have 101, 102, 103. There's different things. Yeah, I, th I think it may be 106. And <laughs> yeah. just keep in mind, at the time you're a graduate student, if you're lucky enough to get an article uh, published at a prestigious university, uh, I mean, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, there's a term for juried, kind of juried um, paper. That's really an accomplishment for a graduate student. For sure. Can I get to an anecdote that some of people in the audience will appreciate more than others? But the first day I went to the University of Hawaii, the first day they introduced the students one at a time to a big circle full of 
instructors. So you're they're all sitting around you and you're the only student in it at that particular time and they want to get to know you. So all eyes are upon you. And uh, so two of the faculty members asked me a question. What are you here to study? Well, okay. Valid question. It would introduce me to the group of faculty members. I said, I'm here to study the psychology of travel. I swear to you, that's exactly what I said. Well, so happens these two people that asked me this question were serious animal behaviorist psychologists. What do I mean by that? They studied animal behavior and controlled experiments. For example, most people think of that as rats running mazes. So these psychologists study the behavior of animals, uh, how that may compare to human behavior. Well, I want to tell you, I was not an animal research psychologist. I never handled a rat in any of my psychology courses. And so I said, I'm here to study the psychology of travel. Well, one of them said to me in front of all these faculty members, there's no such thing as that. You can't study the psychology of travel here. But I find that so strange. Like, why wouldn't they have heard about Lev Vygotsky and Alexander uh, Luria and people because who Because they were animal behavioral psychologists. They were not interested so much in human behavior as animal yeah. behavior, as odd as that may sound. But wait, I said, number one, I may have stood up and I may have pointed right to them. I said... Number one, who are you to define what this field is all about? Can you imagine doing that as a graduate student to these faculty members? I said, if that's your attitude, I don't think I want to be here. And I got up and I walked down to that room. And I thought to myself, my God, how could you do such a stupid thing? Well, wait, I'm almost finished. Two other faculty members ran behind me, tapped me on the shoulder. They said, you get back in there. Just because they said that doesn't mean the rest of us agree with them. And these are the more humanistic uh, psychology professors. So that's really how I started the subject matter of the study of the psychology of travel. Okay. And was, because I, I know you mentioned in your the beginning of your book, you also mentioned Dr. Herbert B. Weaver. Uh, was he a faculty member at that time as well? Yes, he was. And he okay. was... He was involved with the visitor industry in Hawaii. He was one of those people that thought, okay, here's somebody that's interested in some of the things I'm doing, and wow, psychology of travel, this is a terrific thing. And he became my mentor uh, during my psych- psychology studies there. Okay, because I'm, I'm curious about one thing, because obviously this is, this is quite an old study, and I'm not 100% sure if it's, it still applies today. And I'm wondering what you think, because he looked, um, uh, he his findings were that Catholics and Mormons had significantly more negative attitudes towards abortion than either uh, Protestants or those wow. with no religious preference. And that and, was Herbert Weaver? Yeah, yeah. Well, from what I could find, and I found it interesting because, um, well, America on average is more Protestant than, than Catholic. 
And I think the abortion laws, especially right now, are just fucked up. Usually I have a little bit more respect for um, <laughs> when cultures have certain uh, different views about abortion and things like that. But in the case in the U.S., I, I don't respect it as much because I feel like it's just gone backwards. Um, but anyways, <laughs> the other reason I, was, I found it an interesting finding is because something else I heard is that Protestants are on average more likely than Catholics to show the funda fundamental attribution error. Uh, so that's the, the tendency to see behavior as reflecting individual dispositions rather than social context and roles. So like based on that, I would think that Catholics, since they might not have the fundamental attribution error, that they might be more open to understanding it, but it seems like that's not the case. Uh, I was just wondering if you have any insight on this, because uh, I knew that you had a personal connection with Dr. Herbert, so. Yeah, you know, I did not interest myself or focus on that aspect of human behavior at all. I really didn't. I was not interested in that. I was more interested in basically uh, what happens to an American in another culture. You know, you can't study everything. You can only uh, limit yourself to the sorts of things that you're interested in. I was more interested in interculture, intercultural interactions. Hawaii was a place where you had people from all different kinds of cultural backgrounds. I know that religion has played some part in the history of uh, development, social development in Hawaii. Uh, I was not often thrilled with... Uh, what some of the uh, white man's organized religions uh, did in their influence uh, throughout Pacific cultures uh, as Europeans did to the Native Americans. I was not interested in those subjects as much as the psychological topics that pertain to people as a general rule uh, across the board. So I didn't focus on any of that. I don't think I ever discussed with him those papers and frankly I wasn't even aware of what you were just telling because uh, I didn't necessarily delve into his his own personal research when he did his graduate work also in Philadelphia well that's fine we can get into more of than than what you were what you're yeah. more um an, an expert on so when it comes to interculture cultural um interactions it often makes me think of intercultural competence, right? Which is important for businesses and just people in general. Uh, so what are some just interesting notes that you could give the listeners about intercultural competence? Um, now, I know that's a very broad question, but just any interesting notes, whether it be certain things that we should know when going to China, certain things we should know when going to Japan, certain things, whatever pops in your head. Well, now recall uh, a lot of my research once I graduated uh, I finished with graduate school and, for example, went to teach for the University of Maryland overseas European program uh, being in uh, Spain for a total of three different terms, southern Spain. Uh, I began to interview people. I thought the way I was going to really learn about psychology of travel would be to ask people. So I began to interview people. I interviewed upwards to a couple thousand people. And I would ask them questions uh, way back then when I began in the 70s. 
even till today, I tend to ask the same sorts of questions. Uh, they tell a story, for example, of how uh, they were, and lots of people, were vulnerable to being pickpocketed. Uh, and why and uh, they were pickpocketed, how they handled themselves, what they learned from the experience of being pickpocketed. And then I asked them, if you don't mind, would you go back and recreate the experience? How and what would you do differently now? So uh, many of the interviews were based on hearing uh, personal experiences through interviews and then uh, having them explain what happened to them and then asking them what, what they've learned about that and what they would do differently. Okay. Created their okay, so I'm, I'm just wondering, what are some specific uh, pointers that you could give people? You know, like for instance, in Canada, in Japan, um, Slovakia, these are all places where you have to take off your shoes before you go inside. Uh, little pointers like that, or, you know, like thumbs up in some cultures means great jobs and other cultures can mean fuck you. Um, so it's any pointers like this. Oh, yeah. Uh, hundreds of these things. Uh, pulling up specific examples is not the easiest. But the arrival experience, uh, just the simple activity of arriving, coming from home, where you are running uh, largely on automatic. Uh, I like to think of culture as a mosaic of lots of little tiles little pieces fitting together like puzzle pieces and it's a fabric of interlocking influences everything that defines now let's just say uh, being back at home in america you run on automatic you don't think of what you're doing you interact with people you're not aware of the conversations distances you're not aware of how much you will touch somebody else or how much you'll look directly in their eyes it's all automatic all right, what happens when you have an all-night flight? This is just an example of, of the starkness of the contrast. You land in Schiphol, Schiphol in Amsterdam, or you land in uh, Rome, and then you take the train from these airports to the downtowns. And what you don't realize is because you're still, you're tired, you're just not thinking about things that you should observe and take more for uh, less for granted so when you uh, suddenly get onto that train that may be crowded with people and somebody bumps you what do you think you think oh uh, what you would normally think back home oh excuse me sorry and you move away and uh, you find your wallet's missing and you have no idea that you were targeted because of your, into their minds, total lack of awareness of having arrived in a place that, uh, and behaving totally automatically like you behave at home. It's yeah. so simple for these people to distract you. It happens so often. I talked with a correspondent of a famous worldwide magazine in Rome who was pickpocketed three times and mugged once. Uh, he wasn't aware of it. No, you're not aware of it. And that's... that's so How does this tie into cultural competence? Cultural competence is suddenly becoming more alert, more aware of your surroundings and looking around, for example, looking and thinking, uh, 
how are these people interacting me with me? Am I protecting myself? No, okay. they don't even think about it until it's often when it's too late. And that's why they become victims because they don't expect it. They're not aware of it. They're not doing things uh, to become more aware in the very beginning. I just use that as an example of the stark contrast of arriving somewhere totally new when you're just behaving in your normal way that you need mm -hmm. to, for example, look at the hands of a clock in the 15-minute segments around the clock, like yeah. you see Secret Service people. I got and I guess not being aware of these things can lead to some quite funny stories, uh, <laughs> which you have a lot of in Idiots Abroad. Uh, so for the listeners um, who are interested in it, it's a collection of 85 comedic short stories and uh, from over 2,000 interviews. There are stories like Dances with Tigers, Fruits de la Mer, uh, The Browns Whorehouse Hotel, <laughs> Shit-Eating Pigs of Goa. Um, now, of course, you don't need to retell an entire story, but I was wondering if you could just give some highlights to entice the listeners to read the work. Well, I'd like to tell about uh, my experience of being a complete idiot abroad, if you know I'm okay, uh, because uh, it was a learning experience for me. I'm traveling with two friends to Europe in 1964. We rent a car. None of us have had any experience in Europe prior to that. Uh, I don't say we're unintelligent. We're intelligent uh, people who want to interact and make friends and, and have as much fun and experience as we can. So the first thing is we're in a hotel along the French Riviera. We figure, oh, let's go have a picnic. Let's have a picnic lunch. We buy wine and cheese and bread like you cannot get anywhere else than in France and <clears throat> take this all back to our hotel. And I see, oh, there's a an appliance in here, the perfect place to chill our wine. We pack, we pack this round little thing uh, with ice that you turn the faucet on and it squirts water. What is this? All right, we pack our bottles of wine and ice. The girls uh, at the time come in to clean their rooms. They see uh, these bottles packed with ice in the bidet and they didn't know what a bidet was. Well, a bidet is for uh, basically bathing uh, your private parts. It has nothing to do with washing your feet or packing of ice. Every time we came back back and forth to this hotel, the girls just fell on the floor laughing. You cannot do this. You do not put the bottles of wine in the bidet, monsieur. That is not for chilling your wine. All right, well, that was a rude lesson learned. Maybe that same night. I'm not going to say if it was immediately that same night. We go to a restaurant. And we couldn't read the menus. We had no idea what was what. So I put on my dark glasses because I knew this would be really embarrass embarrassing. And we move our fingers and we stop on a menu and we choose steak tartare. Steak tartare, I don't know how many people in the listening audience know what that is, but they're more sophisticated today than we were in 1964. Okay, bring a steak tartare. And... Um, here comes uh, raw horse meat. That's what steak tartare is, and we didn't know that. Excuse me for one second. Well, it can be with beef, too. But <laughs> um, So anyway, it comes, and we ask, what is this? And they say, uh, steak tartare is raw horse meat, monsieur, and they mix in the mustard and the greens, and I thought it was delicious. 
The other two guys go scream in fury and anguish and raise their hands up in the air. We will not eat this uncooked food. We do not eat food that is not cooked because it was raw horse beef. I thought it was fantastic. I Again, I had my sunglasses on, and I tried to distance myself from my two traveling friends as best I could. So I've been in India abroad a few times, but I've also discovered things. I discovered, for example, a a uh, ripoff uh, scam that uh, was being played on American service people uh, taking a bus to uh, to the American military installation on the Black Sea because I taught there for the University of Maryland. And I figured and I saw this uh, scam being played out right in front of me uh, with me being the victim and I didn't manage to figure it out. And get personal satisfaction. I confronted them with this. What they did is they uh, rushed me off of a bus from Istanbul uh, to a bus station in this train in this transportation system area, and they charged me for a ticket. They put the ticket in my hand. They put me on this bus. They just managed my whole experience of arriving in the bus and being put on a bus with a higher price tag of the, of what they charged for the fare, and then they took us off the bus, there was a couple of people, before the bus left, took the piece of paper out of our hands that had the higher price ticket and substituted the true price tickets of a different bus agency, which was a oh. lot less, and put us back on the bus. So I put two and two together, I figured it out. I ran out to the, uh, guy who perpetrated this thing on me and I said more or less finger pointing because I didn't speak Turkish I knew a few words I said you give me this much Turkish lira back or I go to the police which wasn't really a clever thing to do yes risky and he opened the door slowly and I thought oh my god maybe a gun is coming out maybe a knife but it was a ten dollar you know a Turkish money that he gave back to me after he had cheated me. And I realized it did this to many, many, many Americans who had no idea about it, didn't speak Turkish, and they took advantage. Now, I met many, many Turks that I liked. I'm just using an example of where I was scammed and I figured it out, uh, which is not always an easy thing to do. Yeah, and that's another one of your books, right? You have a lot of the, the scams and... Books scams and con games. I have actually, uh, yeah, one book on that. And then another book, uh, what I want to mention as well, because it's completely, well, not completely different, but it's different, is The Road to the Strange, because you're not only a travel psychologist, you're also a UFOologist, um, right? And you've been the state director for the Mutual UFO Network. So uh, when, when you describe The Road to Strange, you talk about paradigm shifters, both, both in travel, um, and supernatural experiences. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what these paradigm shifters are? You know, let's go right to the Mutual UFO Network, which was a a group of uh, people who thought there was something going on with the UFO experience from the early '40s on. This organization began around uh, the early 1960s. Uh, there were a couple of engineers. That started it. So you had some scientists and engineers and 
people, lay people who thought there was something to, possibly to the UFO phenomena. And many of uh, your viewers uh, may notice these days there's a sudden interest by the Pentagon and the Navy uh, because of UFO types of experiences that have happened to carrier groups uh, that pilots started talking. There's things happening. Well, that's a paradigm shift in a sense where now suddenly the Pentagon and military services are taking notice of a subject matter that was routinely ridiculed uh, in the history leading up to the, to the early 2000s uh, because there was an alleged crash of a craft that took place in Roswell. The first day right after, at that time that crash took place, the general of the Army Air Force Base in Roswell, New Mexico, said, hey, publish this in the local papers. UFO alien craft crashes in Roswell and the next day, the Pentagon shut it down, and they uh, played it down. So a par uh, let me tell you about the paradigm shift. A paradigm is, among other definitions, the way that you view the world, the, the way you as a goldfish uh, view your world in the goldfish bowl around you. If you are fortunate enough to get out of that goldfish bowl, and notice that there are other things that are not built into your worldview the way you look at the world, such as in the old days when we thought the Earth was the center of the of the universe, uh, but it turned out the uh, Earth was not the center of our our particular solar system. The Sun was, and we were not as central to the universe as we originally thought we were. That's a paradigm shift. That is a major shift in your philosophical way of looking at the world, looking at the universe. In the UFO field, this guy that started MUFON, MUFON, Mutual Net UFO Network, said to all the researchers, of which there were in different states, who collected and studied and interviewed people who claimed to have these experiences, he said, bring to me the cases that had uh, nuts and bolts. We only want to know about craft. Okay, so as time went on, the 60s, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, yeah, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, all of a sudden people began to realize, you know, people are claiming to have some experiences maybe with entities of different kinds. Are these uh, space aliens? Are these different dimensions? Are these possibly beings, intelligences from our future? Now, all of a sudden people started talking about the universe being a matrix, uh, uh, sort of a computer. Consciousness is now central to the way the or universe is organized. Well, there were people in the UFO field. There was a Harvard professor of psychiatry uh, who was claiming, you know, people are reporting experiences of possibly being taken aboard craft. What's that like? What's that about? How can that be? And he got a professor. Yes, he was a, a professor at Harvard, of so, some, well, right? what was his name? Who, who? John Mack, M-A-C-K. John Mack. They tried to get throw John Mack out of Harvard. They sued him. He sued them back, and he won his case. They could not throw him out of Harvard. He was saying these people are reporting things uh, that ha are very similar to one another, and I don't think they're lying. And then others came along, 
an artist from New York City, Bud Hopkins, H-O-P-K-I-N-S, who published some books. I knew him personally. He uh, he did at least 1,500 interviews of people that also claimed they had experiences with intelligences that are behind some of this. And all of a sudden, the people in the UFO field, including the guy that uh, formed the MUFON organization, was now broadening his way of looking at things. This is not strictly a nuts and bolts thing. We have to look at the reports of what people are saying uh, about their potential interactions uh, with them. So to me, this was all a kind of expanded travel psychology in a way. I thought as a teenager, I thought there was something important about this. I became a psychologist interested in travel psychology. Uh, that just paralleled in a, a co-parallel way my interest in ufology because I thought if there is a phenomenon like that's happening that may be about intelligences that come from elsewhere or else when, and I don't know where they come from, that's also related to my interest in uh, experiences of people with different cultures and beings uh, on the earth, you know, this is a yeah. form of travel. I see the connection there for sure. Uh, now, Michael, we are coming up on an hour, and uh, of course, these episodes are always around an hour. So, just to bring these two together with um, uh, the UFOlogist, uh, UFO aspect, and and also the travel, I think both kind of connect to this idea of a mystical experience. Sometimes travel can feel mystical. Sometimes, um, well, whether people believe in uh, extraterrestrial life or not. Um, I think it does connect to a mystical experience in a way. And the the mystical, I think, is something that we're kind of losing touch with nowadays. Um, so I was wondering what you think about this and how you can kind of wrap this up together with this okay. feeling of the mystic. I, want, I would like to say that uh, in my Road to Strange book series, I did two original books with that, with a, a woman that was very well known in the subject matter, became a friend, and she wanted to co-author with me a couple of books, and we lost her. She passed away a couple of years ago, so I continued The Roads of Strange. The next book was my collection of interviews with people who claimed to have either or paranormal or UFO experiences, and I interviewed in-depth maybe 40, 42 of these people. And I include myself as one. I have not had UFO experiences, but I've had a lifetime of paranormal and psychic things happening to me. I interviewed these people in depth. In depth. I published a book called uh, The Contiguous Universe. And that's a study of all these people from different walks of life and the sorts of different kinds of experiences and try to look at that, try to understand that. You can look at that one. The next one is I just called uh, the, uh, the Road to Strange a psychic reader with a lady reading a glowing sphere, you know, on a table. Uh, and this was just my huge collection of people's experiences of all different kinds of paranormal and ghost experiences, not the, the alien type stuff, which was uh, my book on UFOs, uh, uh, The Road to Strange, UFOs, and so on and so forth. Right. That sums it up. I was open-minded to this. I see these things are important. My contribution 
uh, both in uh, coming up with the term travel psychology and being a ufologist psychologist. I think I paved a little new ground uh, by being willing to listen to what people have to say because there's two mantras if that I abide by. If but one of these is true, what then? And there's so many of these that I believe are true. You have to be open to expanding the paradigm. And the other one is, um, I know what I saw. I know what I saw. I know what I fucking saw. You know, a lot of people, uh, you have to give them the opportunity to express themselves. Not everything is believable. Not everything is true. But some of it is. And until we accept and study and look into this, our paradigms are going to be right there on the flat earth, man. You want to stay on the flat earth? Be my guest. I prefer to explore just like a traveler into the unknown, whether it be just another country and I have a lot to learn or whether it's a, another being from another part of the universe. That would sum it up. I'm it. I study that. All right, Michael. Well, thank you very much. And to the listeners, remember, you can go to withoutborders.fyi to find the transcript and find some more interesting articles on cultural psychology and some more travel stories. You can also check out Michael's website. There will be a link in the description. All right. Tune in next time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.